Support for Innovation Hub comes from Bunker Hill Community College, with internship opportunities at Boston's top corporations through BHCC's Learn and Earn program. More information at bhcc.edu le. Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. Just about a century ago, the richest man in the U.S., John D. Rockefeller, made a trip out west to a fancy hotel in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Last summer, a group of today's richest Americans got together at the very same hotel. Their meeting was not secret, but it was almost impossible to get in unless you had a lot of cash that you were willing to part with. It was organized by brothers Charles and David Koch, who together are wealthier than Bill Gates. And they used some of that money to support their own political interest group, Americans for Prosperity. On the agenda in Colorado Springs was really only one item of business, influencing America's laws. For decades, the very, very rich on both the left and the right have been building networks that help with that influencing. And the effects can be profound. Theda Scotchpole is an expert on these networks. She's a professor at Harvard who has spent decades trying to understand political shifts. She says that, yes, rich people have always wanted to bend politics to their will. But something new and unusual is going on here, especially over the last dozen years. In the Koch network, lots of rich people are now involved, about 500. And there's a focused way to channel their money. I think that is a scale of organization and systematic action that we haven't really seen probably since the late 19th century. Now remember, the growth of this new arm of politics is a reality on both the right and the left. But those on the conservative side seem to have been a lot better at extending their influence, at least so far. Jane Mayer, a staff writer for The New Yorker and author of the book Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right, says that... On the right, this success actually goes way back to the upheaval of the 1960s. I spoke to Scotchpole and Mayer back in January about what they see going on. Here's what Mayer said. This has really been, in its current incarnation, is a 40-year effort at least by mostly corporate heads who were very upset when there was Ralph Nader's consumer movement in the late 60s and early 70s, the environmental movement, the anti-war movement. They saw this as a kind of a, a direct threat to corporate America, and particularly for people like the Kochs, Charles and David, who were uh, sons of a, a member of the John Birch Society, they looked at the sort of the growth of government regulation that came out of the environmental movement and, and all these other sort of movements on the street as, as a kind of the growth of socialism in America. They, they were extremely anti-government. So there was this ideological movement that they began to fund, and it was tiny in the beginning. One of the things that interested me was it's a very, it was a very, very small fringe group of people who whose only advantage was they had tons of money. They were, their views were very unpopular at the time and um, laughed at even by conservatives like William F. Buckley, who described them as anarcho-totalitarians. So they were way out on the fringe, and what interested me was how over 40 years, by using their fortunes 
and organizing. They, they studied American politics like engineers and figured out sort of which widgets to move in which ways in order to change ideology in the country and build a movement. Okay, so Jane, follow up on that a little bit. You talked about the Kochs as engineers, and I should say, David Koch, over time, has donated more than $18 million to WGBH, which produces this show. He used to sit on the board. But you talked about them as engineers. So talk a little bit about like how they made their money, who they are, um, and, and where they come from, the Koch family. Well, the family was based in Wichita, Kansas, and they made their money when their father, Fred Koch, figured out a new way to refine oil, and it, it was more efficient, and he had trouble selling it in the United States, so he, um, ironically, despite later becoming a John Birch Society founder, made the fortune originally by selling his breakthrough to uh, Stalin in the Soviet Union, and then after that, he moved on to uh, Nazi Germany, and uh, helped construct a very important refinery for the Nazis that helped refine the oil that was used by the Nazi Air Force during World War II. He was not, I'm not trying to say he was a Nazi sympathizer. This was before the war, but not that far before the war. And he seemed untroubled by it and came back and became a very active conservative in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the sons grew up in this extreme conservative environment. And um, several of them went to MIT and got graduate degrees degrees there, including Charles Koch and David Koch, um, in engineering and nuclear engineering. And, um, you know, they're very bright, very well trained, and they had a very sort of systematic approach to American politics. And they hired somebody along the way who sort of did a a fascinating research study on how to manufacture American political thinking much as you might manufacture any other product. And they set out to make that a reality. Theda, you have studied uh, what's known as the Koch seminars, and the contents of these seminars are supposed to be kept very quiet. It's kind of a non-disclosure bubble. Uh, But walk me through what the seminars are, what they're like, uh, how they work. Well, first of all, let me say that, yes, these are secretive people and secretive organizations taking advantage of legal structures in the United States that allow wealthy people on both sides of the spectrum to donate without public transparency. And uh, they're good at it. They know how to to, to indirectly channel money. They've been meeting once or twice a year, twice a year really, since the mid-2000s. They're held at resorts where um, military-like security is put around the perimeter once they get to 2008, 9, and after when there are hundreds of people coming. Um, They go on for several days. How do we know that? We know because for a couple of occasions, full programs have been left behind by accident or leaked to reporters. So in our research group, which we, what we did was to literally analyze every single session. What was it about? Who was speaking? Uh, we've done this, by the way, for the left as well, uh, the left group. So we're not we're doing it on both sides. And after each of these events, there's usually some target for fundraising created. And from 2011 on, a lot of the fundraising is going through the Freedom Partners Chamber of Commerce, which is a sort of money channeling organization at the kind of core of the Coke Network that takes donations from the people who attend twice a year, they have to give at least 100000 and most of them give a lot more than that. Uh, and then they 
they channel that to other organizations. They have to report the organizations that they give the money to. So we have analyzed that pattern from late 2011 on. For about half the money, I would say, that the Cokes are channeling, uh, and uh, Cokes and their guests mm. at these several-day rich people confabs, where they listen to ideas... Do they and have academics come? They, who, whose uh, ideas are they? There are some academics who come. In fact, more academics attend their meetings than attend the leftist meetings. Really? Yes. <laughs> and But these are academics who are working at universities or programs or think tanks that receive funding from the Koch Foundation or from their, uh, their kind of libertarian ideas initiatives or their ultra-free market uh, subsidies. They are kind of friendly academics, and they are sworn to silence like everybody else. But mainly it's wealthy people, men, white men and their wives. Usually they come as couples because it's a social networking occasion, as well as an occasion to hear the political strategies that are being hatched, to meet key politicians. Paul Ryan of Wisconsin is a frequent guest. Uh, Mitch McConnell has been there. All of the contenders for the 2016 presidential uh, nominations on the GOP side were there, except for one Donald J. Trump. Mm -hmm. We will get to that. Uh, We'll get to that. So these are occasions to meet politicians, including up-and-comers like Joni Ernst in Iowa, who was a state senator, I believe, before, that you might want to support. And what we've done in our research is to show the organizations that get a chance to speak and make their case— and then see whether they're getting contributions channeled through Freedom Partners. And they are. And it's a very small number of mainly Coke-controlled organizations that are getting the resources that these rich people are giving. We've also looked to see whether politicians who appear at these meetings get a bump up in donations from wealthy conservatives afterwards. And they do. I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub, and you're listening to a conversation I had back in January with Jane Mayer, who's the author of the book Dark Money, and Theda Scotchpole, a professor at Harvard who studies the growth and the use of political money. And I asked Scotchpole whether there was something coke-like going on on the left. Well, it's not a family in the case. The, the Democracy Alliance was founded in 2005, around the same time, shortly after the Koch seminars were started on a very small scale. Bottom line is that many more wealthy conservatives attend the Koch seminars, as far as we can tell. Um, it's around 100 to 200 who attend uh, the Democracy Alliance meetings, but they both meet twice a year. They both meet in uh, posh locations. Uh, They both hear from political organizations that the key here is that it's not so much politicians that are getting the money. It's other political organizations that are pursuing an overall vision of change in the country. Now, here's the thing. I mean, it's not only there are many more people attending the Koch seminars from 2010 and 11 on than on the the Democracy Alliance seminars. The scale of money that's being raised is probably four to five times as much. And yet, on the left, it's being channeled to hundreds of organizations, whereas on the right, it's being channeled mainly to Coke-controlled organizations, about a dozen or so of them that work together. So the way I like to put it is that you've got free market Leninism on the right (laughs) and progressive market anarchy on the left. 
so Jane Mayer, and can I, yeah, and, I was going to say, and, give me a sense of your vision of right versus left here. Well, Professor Scotchpole's done some terrific work on this. I have to say, along with Alexander Hertel Fernandez, they've their 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 study is really just the first really serious academic effort to kind of map this whole process and it's 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 wonderful but the um one of the questions that i had for her is i i I think and i may be wrong that another difference is that i think in the case of the coke side of things the right-wing side of things the money is pooled by these billionaires and and multimillionaires into Freedom Partners, as she said, which is controlled by Koch operatives, and they decide where to spend it, whereas, for the most part, whereas I think on the left, yeah. the groups come and, and audition for the money in front of the, the rich donors, and then the donors get to decide which of the groups they want to give it to. So there's not this kind of centralization, but there seems to be much more sort of command control over on the right. And again, it's one of the things the Kochs have excelled at is building of of, you know, this it's an amazing machine, really. It's a political machine in some ways. Yeah, you know, I really agree with uh, with Jane's comments. With um, th- this is what I meant, and I it's too shorthand. The, the Democracy Alliance really is a marketplace. So this is the uh, this is, is the folks on the left. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, the meetings, uh, which I've been to a couple of them, consist of large numbers of organizations, progressive organizations, making the case that they should get donations. But it's up to the partners, as the wealthy participants in the Democracy Alliance are called, to make their own decisions. And their decisions tend to be scattered all over the place, Mm -hmm. to be frank with you. I mean, there's some degree of concentration of resources on some longstanding groups. But um, in the case of the Koch seminars, and, you know, we haven't had the chance to interview wealthy people who've attended them. I'm hoping to get some opportunity to do that. Because, um, you know, there are, I, I feel certain that the Kochs and their close associates do have to do, to engage in a degree of persuasion. And, for example, Betsy DeVos is one of the people who's attended. She's very interested in school, breaking up the public schools and channeling private money into for-profit schools, uh, as well as charter schools. And... They certainly have to accommodate her. So I think that there's probably some quiet um, acceptance of the fact that some of the money is going to go to Christian right type organizations, even though the, I don't think the Koch brothers are Christian anything. I mean, I I just don't think they care. Uh, Jane may know better. I should say here that um, Betsy DeVos is um, Trump's pick for Secretary of Education. Yeah, and we should get on to the fact that this 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 network is uh, is shaping domestic policy. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 such an irony because people people watched this year most of the political press, which I'm part of, saying that that because the Kochs did not back a presidential candidate, um, they they they'd assembled this huge jackpot and they were holding it out, and then they didn't like their choices in the end, so they didn't want to choose um, to put their money behind Donald Trump. That they've been sort of sidelined, and far from that. If you take a look at the at the new Trump administration as it's shaping up. 
there's kind of this deep influence that their their money and their people have. You know, they joke about the Kochs as a coctopus, and you can kind of see the tentacles <laughs> all the way throughout the new Trump administration. It's completely remarkable. Jane, I want to ask you about that because, as, as you yourself have pointed out, during the Republican primary in the lead-up to the 2016 election, all these Republican nominees essentially went to the Kochs and said, I, you know, I'd really like your money. That'd really help me out here. The only person who didn't was Donald Trump. Of course, that was the person who ultimately won the election. So why would he be influenced by the Kochs at all? Because it seems like one of the things that he ran on was saying, look, I'm a rich person myself. I don't need money. Well, so let's unpack this a little bit. I mean, I think part of the reason he did win was because he ran against uh, the sort of corruption of American government that is um, symbolized by big donors like the Kochs. And he called the other candidates who flocked to get their money puppets and, and, and mocked them. And, of course, the Kochs didn't like this, um, and they, they withheld their money. But it, it gave him a lot of traction with the American public. Both he and Bernie Sanders, in many ways, were saying similar-sounding things about the corruption of American politics. So, you know, this was a year when I think the, the American public really turned against big money in a lot of ways. And I mean, it's actually, if you look at public opinion polls, they've long been against big money. And there's a, a large majorities against uh, the Citizens United Supreme Court decision that allowed even more political spending. And so um, at any rate, he benefited from that. But when it came down to picking a vice presidential candidate, he picked Mike Pence, who has also long been one of the Koch's absolutely favorite politicians. And in 2012, Charles Koch wished he could get Pence to run for president. It was his first choice. Mm -hmm. And Pence's policies are a mixture of things. Some of them are Christian right, which, as you have said earlier, is not something that matters that much to the Kochs. They're not religious activists in by any stretch. But he is a free market fundamentalist, as they are, and shares their view of, you know, the best government is the smallest government, and it's great when business makes its own rules. And so they're on the same page on that. And he seems to have had quite a bit of influence in setting up the new um, domestic policies. Jean, what happens from here with these very powerful political organizations that have risen up amongst the wealthy, um, particularly amongst the Kochs, who you have studied so much? Well, the Kochs are getting very old now. They're, you know, in their 80s, I guess. And um, so, you know, that, that everything changes in politics. It's ripe for change. My guess of the people that I've covered, the statement that struck home with me was John McCain, who had tried to reform money in politics earlier, said he thinks it's going to take a huge scandal like Watergate, and then there'll be a wave of reform again. And I think that probably makes sense. Most reforms have come after huge scandals. And judging from the early days of the, you know, Trump administration, it looks like we're cruising for many huge scandals. The question is whether the public will care, but it, it certainly looks ripe for that. Theta? I think the biggest achievement of the organized right in, in recent times has been to discredit the idea of democratic government, to raise questions about whether any of it matters. I think a, young, a lot of young people are just saying, to hell with it. This is a great danger. The scandals of the Trump era may very well lead to people simply dropping out. 
So I worry a lot about that. I am not convinced that it'll be smooth sailing for this Trump GOP conglomerate. But I do think there has to be sustained, uh, morally inspired opposition uh, to them. Theda, I want to ask you, you know, here we've talked about these kind of new organizations that have sprung up. Are liberals going to or have they started saying, look, if right, if rich people can influence things from the right, we can do the same thing. If they can build a structure and, yeah, maybe it takes a, a few decades to sort of get all the pieces in place and make it successful, we can do that. And we, the, you know, 1% of the 1% on the left, we can have the same effect. Yeah, I don't think so. I um, I hope, I do believe that um, liberals and progressives have the possibility for creating coherent and powerful organizations that operate across all levels of American government and across 50 states. That's what it takes. But right now, um, I feel that there's a lot of fragmentation on the left. And there's also, I'm going to say something that's going to make everybody, including Jane Mayer, very upset. There is a, um, an almost knee-jerk belief that big money in politics is the problem. What I say is big money combined with very bad values and powerful organization is the problem. I do not believe that the top goal on the left right now should be what it is for a lot of people on the left, which is to get money out of their side of politics. Not unless you figure out a way to get a lot of money in from another angle. I'm a strong believer in widespread dues-placed organizations. But, and we haven't talked about this, the number one goal of the Koch network and other forces on the right has been to disorganize the left. Every time they come to power at any level of government, and boy, we see no exception to that in the appointments that Trump is making, his cabinet, his president. Trump's cabinet is full of people who are devoted to destroying what's left of American unions, defunding Planned Parenthood, basically uh, discouraging constituencies from voting or mobilizing people to vote on the left. And, you know, that's the first thing they do. The first thing they do is to disorganize their opponents. And frankly, I don't think American liberals and progressives have come up with a response to all of this. Theda Scotchpole is a sociologist and a political scientist at Harvard who studies American politics. And Jane Mayer is a staff writer for The New Yorker. She's the author of Dark Money, the hidden history of the billionaires behind the rise of the radical right. Jane and Theda, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Great to be with you. I spoke with Theda Scotchpole and Jane Mayer back in January. You can find out more about their work on our website. And we will also have a link to the Koch's reaction to Mayer's book. Plus, a fascinating look from the Chicago Tribune at Koch Industries itself and the brands that it owns that probably are part of your everyday life. So we're talking brawny paper towels, Dixie cups, stain master carpet. That's all at innovationhub.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. Last fall, I talked with Tim Wu from Columbia Law School about the tremendous power of simply being able to capture the public's attention. 
And that attention grab is going on in some pretty weird places. One of those places is schools. There are school districts that have printed report cards on stationery with the McDonald's logo. And the idea was, if you get good grades, you'll get a happy meal. In his book, The Attention Merchants, The Epic Scramble to Get Inside Our Heads, Wu tries to figure out how this happened. And in some sense, it's not complicated. We just started to capitulate. I think we have given up on the idea that some spaces are sacred and non-commercial. And uh, the mindset is, well, if you're a school, we have all these students and we're short on money. And, you know, if we make this deal, we get free money. It's a win-win situation. All we have to do is, you know, turn our hallways into, into moving billboards. And then we get an extra half a million dollars we can spend on sports or something like that. I think the, the mindset that advertising equals free money has kind of taken over. And uh, on the other and, side... And I have to say, there are schools with, the, with enormous television screens in the hallway broadcasting yeah. commercials all the time. Yes. Um, so this idea of a billboard, like it, it's a really high-tech billboard. Yeah, and they mix them with school announcements, and it's supposed to be a win-win because you supposedly get the TV for free. Um, you know, and there's a lot of desperation in public schools. We don't have enough money. We need to do something. You know, it seems like it's their duty. I, and I want to say that over the next 10 years, I would expect a lot more spaces that we think of as sacred or unusual for advertising to become targeted. Some of them are already. There's a movement to increase um, the amount of advertising in, in state and national parks. Um, <laughs> there's some state parks in Washington State that already, you know, allow extensive advertising. You can name trails. You can name trees and things like this. Whoa. So you, you could been... be going down, like, the Starbucks trail or the McDonald's yes. trail or whatever. Whoa. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I know. I, and the, <laughs> the national parks have suggested they want to follow this trend as well. They're like, well, we need to rebuild things. and. You know, our infrastructure is crumbling and we don't have enough money. So, yeah, this is another trend. <laughs> There's even been a little bit of um, beginnings of product placement in sermons in churches. Whoa, again. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 that's, I, when you talk about sacred, I mean, these are literally supposed to be sacred spaces. Right. But, um, yeah, well, think about the logic. You have people showing up Sunday, especially in the mega churches. They're listening carefully. So they're an obvious captive audience. So why not try to get the pastor to mention a movie and, you know, try to reward him or her for doing so? Usually, And, and that's really happening? Like, is, is that, that really That has happen? happened, yes, already for – usually it's uh, movies that Hollywood hopes will attract uh, religious viewers, um, like, like the latest Superman movie, which had religious themes. And so they, they try to get product placements in, um, in sermons. So, yeah, I wouldn't expect there to be very few areas – not uh, targeted. One reason, however, I add to this is we are increasingly trying to avoid ads at the same time, revolting. Right. You know, a lot of people, young and old, are declaring they've had it. And so there's this desire to move into spaces where you really can't get away or somehow get at an audience, which is really hard to, to get at. So that's what's going on. And, you know, it's not my favorite development. How much is this a result of people saying, well, I'm going to listen to, you know, I'm going to uh, watch television on Netflix, which is awesome because there's, you know, mm -hmm. say, no commercials. Or I'm going to, you know, listen to radio through Spotify or whatever. You, you know what I mean? Like, in yeah. some ways, our advertisers just saying, well, I mean, look, you're leaving us. You're leaving the platforms where we used to be. we got to find you. 
I think that is what they're talking about. And the inability of, or the unwillingness of people to sit through advertisements the way they uh, once did. Yeah, I think that that has a lot to do with it. Advertisers are desperate to try to get people or deliver them for their customers. And so anywhere you might sort of surprise people. One of the things that happens is we build up resistance. So we start ignoring one kind of advertising. It becomes less valuable. So if you get someone somewhere else, you kind of have a fresh start. And I think that's powering uh, this tendency. And, um, yeah, we are like become, you know, like fish who've been fished a whole bunch and the lures <laughs> no longer work. That's us. <laughs> We're sick of that stuff. And so you need sneakier stuff to get at us. So, I mean, I was going to ask if, if you think people can get away from it or if there are these kind of spaces where you're a little bit safe. But it sounds like increasingly not really. No, I think you can. I, it, okay. it takes a lot of willpower. You know, you have to make some heavy decisions. Now, one thing that you mentioned, which I think is really important, is in fact paying for content and knowing that often paid content or or um, other you know, public radio, which is you know actually has some sponsors but is not as extensive, you know, reading books. There are ways you can choose to spend your time, which is less advertised to, and and that's one thing people can and do do. So I don't think it's hopeless. One of the things I think we culturally have as a problem is we have this expectation at this point, it's the worst on the web, that everything has got to be free. Hmm. You know, you sort of expect, right. it's all there, I want it to be free. And now that the ads are showing up and showing up, we're like, what is going on with these ads? I can't stand it. But part of that is, I don't want, I don't like blaming us, but in a certain way, we are a little bit greedy, a little demanding for things to be free. So I I really do believe if you don't like these trends, you do have to suck it up and pay for more stuff and kind of retreat into those worlds. Or, you know, spend more time with your family or friends uh, in restaurants, bars, that kind of place, and uh, choose to live your life that way. Or, you know, go for long canoe rides or hikes. Those, <laughs> those are the kind of things you have to do. I'm not kidding. Or you, you, Or maybe become like move to a monastery. I mean, if you really want it, you can move to a monastery and hopefully uh, you won't have too much advertising there. Tim Wu is a professor at Columbia Law School. He's also the author, most recently, of The Attention Merchants, the epic scramble to get inside our heads. We spoke with him last fall. We also talked at that time about how the struggle to get our attention has played out in politics. We've got that part of the discussion at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. And if you feel like it's kind of unfair that some cities have become places where only big shots can really afford a pad, there are some little guys making inroads, too. But I'm talking super little. Think for a minute about all the people stacked on top of each other in cities, not to mention dogs and cats and ferrets and rats and cockroaches, and you'll start to realize this is microbial heaven. It's kind of a little bit disturbing. I try not to think about it too much. But every surface we touch, actually our, our bodies, the human body, is covered in microbes. Your skin, your gut, your mouth, your eyes have mites in them. Microbes are everywhere. Holly Bick studies microbes. She's an assistant professor of nematology at the University of California, Riverside. 
but she used to be at New York University. And she was part of a study that tried to figure out something both simple and complicated. What's the microbial situation on ATM keypads in New York City? So really, the rationale behind the study was just this lack of knowledge. We don't know anything about the microbes that live on ATM buttons. But um, I kind of think of ATMs as this watering hole in the city, right? Everyone needs to go get cash at some point, especially in New York. So humans just sort of flock to these ATMs, and we're, all, we're using them, and we're using them with a very specific part of our body, which is our, our fingers and our hands. What the scientists did was go around and swab ATMs in Manhattan, Queens, and Brooklyn. And what'd they find? So we found seafood, we found chicken, um, we found DNA signatures from people's pets, so cats and dogs. And then we found a lot of microbes, which we really don't know what they're doing out there. We found some sort of novel microbes, which aren't very well characterized. They might be coming from the environment. They might just be fungal species, which are kind of in the air, floating around on dust and and falling down. And then um, we also found a lot of bacteria that are associated with human skin. So we're shedding microbes when we're using the ATMs, and that's coming from our skin skin microbiome, too. Not super appetizing. So you're not just ingesting your own food, but also little bits of the meals of a bunch of people who use the ATM before you. What they didn't find was that there were many differences between the boroughs. So the keypads in Manhattan and Queens and Brooklyn all looked pretty much the same. Urban areas actually have a whole microbial world that is very powerful and completely invisible. You can't get rid of it no matter how hard you try. And Bick argues you shouldn't want to. The idea that, you know, we need to be super clean and sterilized all the time is actually really bad for our health because it can make our immune system just completely overreact when we do touch dirt or come into contact with pets. So, you know, in a way, microbes are helping us because they're helping our body not to freak out. You know, our body is the product of however many million years of evolution. And so we can't just turn off our immune system and we can't, you know, control how it reacts to things. So actually being a little bit dirty is really healthy for us in, in the long term. But if you're a city dweller, or even if you're a city visitor, and you're trying to convince yourself not to be scared by the invisible microbial world around you, consider Bic's advice to those of us who are now grossed out by ATM keypads. I would say if you swab the dishes in your dishwasher, you would probably find similar pieces of DNA, because DNA is really resistant. It survives. So, you know, if you're not washing an ATM keypad like you're washing your dishes, then of of course it's going to be there. And I think that many of the surfaces that we come into contact with do have this kind of DNA and, and microbes and different things on them all the time. I mean, your computer keyboard, if you eat at your desk. So um, just because we know about it on ATM keypads doesn't mean it doesn't exist in, in other areas of your life every day. So don't worry. Holly Bick is an assistant professor at the University of California, Riverside. We'll have a link to the study she worked on while at NYU. That's at our website, innovationhub.org. For years, there's been talk about how few women have attained high levels of power in society, in government, in business, in nonprofits. Now, there's a few reasons why that may be true. Women may not be as talented or as qualified as men. Or they may be just as talented and qualified, maybe more talented, but they're held back by discrimination. Or it could be that they don't put in the same hours that men do, for a variety of reasons. Tomas Chamorro Pre-Music lays out these three options as the ones that we typically gravitate towards. 
But he says there's another possibility that does not get mentioned as much, but one he happens to think is right. Chamorro Prey Music is a professor of business psychology at University College London, and his research leads him to believe that men run more organizations than women because too many of us confuse confidence with competence. Tomas, welcome to the show. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. So explain this confusion between confidence and competence. Uh, Why are we so bad at, at distinguishing between the two? Sure. I think, you know, the basic idea is that um, most people anywhere in virtually any culture assume that when somebody is confident that they automatically have talent or competence. Hmm. Uh, In reality, most people who show confidence either internally or externally are not as good as they think. And that leads to problematic circumstances because we promote to position of powers people who think they're good when they actually aren't. Why haven't we uh, learned this over time? I mean, it's not like civilization is just starting out and we're just trying to figure out who would be good leaders. I mean, we have a track record of choosing leaders in all sorts of societies, different countries around the world. Why haven't we learned? And this could be in business. It could be in politics, whatever. Um, Why haven't we learned what makes a good leader? Mm -hmm. And it's a very good question. And I think in politics, you know, this issue of actually mistaking charisma, um, charm and uh, maybe social skills for competence is particularly problematic. I think in in organizations, there is now a better understanding that you should judge leaders on what they actually can do uh, on their track record and on their ability to um, build and maintain a high-performing team or organization. So you've done studies on this. How do you study um, whether people confuse competence and confidence? How do you study, you know, whether people prefer men to women? Like, how do you study that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. So what we try to do is we, it's fairly simple, we get people to estimate different abilities. How good are you at mathematics? How good are you at singing? How good are you at uh, kind of uh, knowledge tests? Um, how good are you when it comes to uh, creativity problems? And then we don't just give them these uh, self-assessments so that they can report on how good they think they are. We actually put them through evaluations that measure how good they are compared to others. And then we can calculate whether they're overconfident and underconfident. Once you do that, you can see how these individual differences in either overestimates or underestimates relate to real-world indicators of success in uh, work, at university, in terms of social relationships, and even vis-a-vis health outcomes. For example, people who think they're better than they actually are in uh, artistic abilities um, tend to live uh, shorter lives, tend to be Hmm. more unhealthy. There's a lot of indicators that um, we have been able to measure as a function of being overconfident. That's shocking to me that people who are overconfident can have shorter lives. Yeah, in general, you know, you can pick any domain of competence. And when people think they're better than they actually are, what you find is that Um, they seem to be suffering or show detriments 
in various different areas of life. So, for example, if you overestimate how funny you are because you think you're funnier than you actually are, or you think you can play the piano better than you actually can, or you think that you're more creative than you actually are, what we would find is that you're actually not performing as well on the job and also you're not as healthy as other people and also that you have shorter life expectancy uh, compared to people who are either... Uh, accurate in their mm-hmm. estimates of uh, ability or even underconfident. Hmm. Okay, you've talked about there being a pretty big gender difference here. So give me a sense of the spread between mm-hmm. how men uh, view their competence and how women view their competence and then uh, obviously how confident they are um, in those areas. Mm-hmm. Gender differences in confidence are probably one of the largest found in any psychological variable. And what's interesting is that when you measure actual abilities, talent, or competence, you find very little actual gender differences. In other words, if you want to know how good people actually are, there is no salient gender differences. If anything, in many domains, you find differences that favor women. For example, in most places around the world, more women go to university than men, Mm -hmm. Uh, women obtain higher levels of GPA or academic performance than men, and even if you judge qualities that actually contribute to leadership effectiveness, such as emotional intelligence, women score higher than men. So what we find is at the level of competence or actual talents, no significant sex differences or many differences favoring women, Mm -hmm. but when you actually look at self-estimates of these abilities or confidence, you find that men systematically overestimate their abilities compared to women. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Tomas Chamorro Premusic about how we often confuse confidence and competence. Um, what are traits that maybe go unrecognized but are actually very important in leaders that we should be thinking about more? I think the main leadership traits that uh, we should be considering are Uh, good judgment. Number two, I think uh, empathy and the capacity to uh, engage or motivate uh, other people. It's uh, it's often uh, discussed under the context of emotional intelligence and luckily has received a lot of attention in the past 10-15 years. Um, And I think um, a third critical uh, quality is self-awareness, the ability to understand how you impact other people. And that is, of the three qualities I mentioned, the one that is really more closely related to confidence, because uh, if you think you're better than you actually are, you're probably off when it comes to evaluating what other people think of you or how Mm. you impact others. Uh, You mentioned before that in politics, we may not have really figured out uh, who should have power. But but in business, a little more so. They're a little more on to this research about sort of that we often elevate the wrong people. Um, How widespread is that? And have you seen that being incorporated into businesses, into how they do things? Yeah, I think in businesses, you can see that um, organizations that have an edge and that are the most successful organizations in their field 
tend to take, first of all, employee selection and leadership uh, nominations and selection more seriously and are much more data-driven. So, you know, it's a very simple exercise to do in a large organization because you can say, okay, we have a bunch of leaders who are overconfident. They think they're better than their employees think they are. And we have a bunch of leaders who are maybe underconfident or at least accurate. Well, how do their teams perform? How do their departments and uh, units perform? And what you will find there, this is independent research that has been published, is that leaders who are more humble or more accurate in their self-evaluations tend to perform better. So, you know, organizations pay a lot of attention to data because it leads to ROI, profits and revenues. Mm -hmm. In the case of politics, it's much harder because most politicians, unfortunately, are focused on maintaining their power once they get there. And, uh, you know, politics today everywhere, not just in the US, has become a very... Uh, mediatic game. I think since the 60s, 70s, even more so in the 80s, um, you can't be in politics if you're not charismatic, if you're not televisual, now if you don't have a strong social media following. And, and that leads to people making evaluations on very uh, irrelevant or trivial uh, signals or behaviors that actually don't say anything about your ability to run a country or uh, a state. You know, whether you can be funny on Twitter, for example, doesn't predict whether you can make the right decisions for a big country. So in business, I think women have thought for the past few years they should be more like men, right? They should project more confidence, uh, that they should adopt some characteristically male traits. Some of your research, though, uh, seems to suggest that uh, in some ways men should really be more like women. Which do you think it is? Yeah, I think, you know, this is perhaps the only counterintuitive or controversial point that I have made um, which is that, you know, to me, it doesn't really make much sense to uh, try to persuade women to lean in more or to self-promote more or to act, you know, with more bravado and, and if you like, be more overconfident or more narcissistic or to behave in a more male normative way. Why? Um, because those qualities, those attributes are not really relevant indicators of performance. And, and the world is already in a pretty problematic stage or doing worse than it could be doing um, because we mistake these indicators of uh, confidence with indicators of competence. So my point is very simple, that if we could correct our criteria and use the right parameters to evaluate talent, mm -hmm. then... You know, what we would want is not for women to behave more like men, but for men to behave more like women. If that happened, if fewer impostors, so to say, or fewer people managed to deceive us into thinking that they're good when in fact they're not, then we would end up with more competent people in charge. Uh, lastly, can you think of anybody who, and it could be political, it could be business, um, who is your ideal leader? I think in the realm of uh, politics, it's much harder. But I would say um, Angela Merkel. I think that uh, um, the Chancellor of Germany has, uh, especially in the last four or five years, demonstrated that um, she has so many of the critical yet underrated qualities that leaders ought to have today. I mean, she's very cool-headed, very calm, um, almost apolitical in a sense, very data-driven, 
um, shows empathy when she has to, and at the same time, you know, um, seems to clearly have uh, high levels of intelligence, expertise, knowledge, which don't require um, narcissistic charisma or charm um, you know, to be uh, um, to make an impact, mm -hmm. and I would say, you know, there probably won't be many movies on Angela Merkel because, <laughs> by the standards of Silvio Berlusconi or The Wolf of Wall Street, she's a pretty boring uh, um, person, and and you might not have a fun night out with her. But, you know, would you rather have her running your country or somebody with the opposite profile? <laughs> and I think in, in the in the world of business, um, I do think, um, you know, people like uh, uh, Jeb Bezos, uh, perhaps uh, Warren Buffett. The CEO um, of Amazon and, and Berkshire yes, Hathaway. Yes, yes, uh, are impressive because uh, although, of course, they feature in the media quite a lot, um, what you can see in their track record is uh, their incredible vision and uh, judgment for running companies in a way that uh, uh, clearly outperforms their competitors. Tomas Chamorro Pre Music is a professor of business psychology at University College London. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. And if you're in a position of leadership and you're now wondering, wait, am I overconfident? Tomorrow Pre Music says, get feedback from people around you and people who work for you. One person may be off, but when you aggregate their opinions, you'll start to get a pretty accurate picture. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producer Mark Solinger, and engineer Doug Sugars. We also had production help from Mariel Carricker and Samantha Crozier. If you missed a part of today's show, or if you want to hear any of our segments when you're away from your radio this summer, you can grab our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. PRI, Public Radio International. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1